So we have a long passage today, and we've got a lot of ground to cover. We're going to do Romans 3, verses 1 to 20 today, and I hope we can cover it in one sermon. It's my plan anyway. So yeah, we need to get to work. We've got a lot to do. So let's begin with prayer, and then we'll read the whole passage. So turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Lord, as we open up this precious passage of your word, we pray that you'd help us to see clearly what it is that you're communicating, and let us draw the implications from this text that your spirit would have us. We pray, Lord, that the sinfulness of man and the ensuing judgment upon him would come home to us full force and instruct us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie... The truth of God abounded to his glory. Why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged <clears throat> that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now in the first three chapters of Romans, the Apostle Paul is acting as a master prosecuting attorney. And he's bringing various groups of people before the tribunal of God, and he's proving that they are guilty and that they need the gospel. In chapter 1, verse 17, he says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. So the gospel is a revelation of God's righteousness. And that's what all men need. They need the righteousness of God so that they can stand before him accepted. Well, what Paul has to do is he has to help people understand that they have the sickness, because no man will, is going to take a cure unless he knows he's sick. And so in the first three chapters, Paul is proving to them their need for this gospel, how they desperately need it. And so in chapter 1, he addresses the heathen in verses 18 to 32. And he shows the heathen man that he's without excuse and that he's under the wrath of God. And then in chapter 2, he addresses the Jew. He starts off in chapter 2, verse 1, and he says, Therefore you have no excuse, not only the heathen, but also the Hebrew. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. So chapter 1, the, the heathen. Chapter 2, the hypocrite. He's judging others, but doing the same thing himself. He has no excuse. And then the last half of chapter 2, the Hebrew, the Jew, he says to him that even though he has the law and he has been circumcised, he's still no better off than a Gentile unless he practices the law. 
So the heathen, the hypocrite, the Hebrew are all without excuse. They're all condemned by God. They're all under his wrath. Well, when we come to chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, you're going to think, what in the world happened here? It's like he just went off. And actually, he does. He goes on a rabbit trail for eight verses. He gets off track for a little while because what he's doing in the first eight verses of chapter 3 is he's answering objections that he knows are in the mind of a, a Jewish person that's been listening to him expound on the gospel of grace. You see, Paul is used to debating Jews. And he knows what kinds of questions they are going to bring at him when he preaches the gospel of grace. And so he takes a few minutes to answer those objections before he comes back in verse 9 and starts to go on with his argument. Now, I don't want to take a lot of time with verses 1 to 8. We're going to handle them very briefly this morning because I don't want to get too far off track. I want to get back on track and finish Paul's line of thinking. But as part of our intro, let's just deal quickly with the three objections that the Jews would bring to Paul. Uh, the first one is, they would say, Paul, are you saying that the Jew has no advantage over the Gentile? Now, do you see why they would say that? He ends in verses 25 to 29 by saying, if you don't keep the law, then Gentiles who do keep the law are going to judge you. And he says to them, a, a Gentile who keeps the law, God's going to count him as being circumcised. And you who are circumcised but don't keep the law, God will count you as being uncircumcised. In other words, you have no spiritual advantage over Jews unless you keep the law. That's the issue, not whether you're circumcised or not. So they would say, well, Paul, what are you saying? Are, are, are you saying that I'm on the same level as a Gentile and that I have no advantage over them at all? Wait a minute. God chose the Jews. God entered into a special covenant with the Jews. How can you say that we're no better off than they are? And that's why they ask the question, what's, what advantage has the Jew? What's the benefit of circumcision? Paul's answer, the benefit, well, there are several of them. He says, first of all, implying that he was going to go on with a list of them, and he only gets to the first one. He never <laughs> lists the rest of them. But the very first one is that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, the sad thing is, they didn't take advantage of having the oracles of God. They weren't trustworthy of being entrusted with the very word of God. God gave them the law. He, the oracles of God simply means the spoken word of God. God spoke to them, gave them light. All the other nations were left in darkness. So it was a great advantage to have the light of truth but the problem was they fixated on the truth, thinking that salvation was in possessing and knowing the law, and they were wrong. The scriptures were given to point them to a savior, not to point them to the scriptures alone. Let me show you this to you. Um, Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39, John five thirty-nine. Jesus said, speaking to the Jews, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. See, if you fix your hope and your confidence in the fact that you have a Bible and you know what's in it, but you miss Christ, you've missed everything. The scriptures were intended to lead you to salvation, which is through faith in Jesus Christ. So... That's the first advantage. God gave them the law, but they didn't take advantage of that because it didn't lead them to their Messiah, Christ, to be saved by him. Okay, the second objection in Romans 3, verses 1 to 8 was this. Doesn't what you are saying imply that God's unfaithful? Because in verse 3, they ask, What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Doesn't that mean God's being unfaithful if he's not saving all of the Jewish people? Most of the Jews didn't believe in Christ when he came. So is God being unfaithful to his promises? Hasn't God promised to save his people? So that's their argument. The answer, may it never be. Now, Paul doesn't go into detail the answer to that objection here, but he does in Romans chapter 9. In verse 6, 
of Romans 9, he says, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. What does he mean? Just because you can trace your blood lineage back to Abraham does not mean that you're a true Jew. God is saving all true Jews. Well, who's a true Jew? He already told us in chapter 2, verse 8 and 20, 28 and 29. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. In other words, a true Jew is someone who has been born again by the Holy Spirit. He's one of God's elect, one that God has set his love upon before time and chosen to save. That's a true Jew. And God is being faithful to his promise to save all of them. He will save every last one of his elect and he will bring them into the olive tree, they will be one people with the elect of Israel in the Old Testament and the elect Gentiles in the New. They will form one body of his people and God's faithful to save every one of them. So that's how he answers the second objection. Third, but wouldn't it be wrong for God to punish us if our sin shows how right he is? Now, I confess that this objection really doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I think, who thinks like this? <laughs> but apparently Jews in the first century did. And this is how the argument goes. Uh, notice in verse 5. No, let me back up to verse 4. Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. So, if my lie demonstrates God's truthfulness by contrast then I'm glorifying him when I lie. In other words, if, <laughs> I know that it's hard to understand this argument, but if you, if you go to a jeweler and they're going to show you a, a beautiful piece of jewelry, they'll put it on black velvet to make it stand out by contrast. And the people here are saying, well, my unrighteousness is just showing off how righteous God is by contrast to me. So how can God judge me and pour out his wrath on me when I'm just glorifying him by showing how great he is? Do you guys get it? <laughs> I hope. <laughs> That's their argument here. And Paul says in verse um, 6, how's God going to judge the world if you're right about that? Everybody understands and agrees that God's going to judge the world, but if you're right, that your sin is going to show off how great he is, and he can't judge you because you're glorifying him, then he can't judge the world. So your argument's wrong. <laughs> and he says at the end here, their condemnation is just. Okay, so those are the three objections. We dealt with those very briefly. We're getting back on track now in verse 9, and we're going to finish out Paul's argument that he started in chapter 1, verse 18. We're going to go through chapter 3, verses 9 to 20, and see how he concludes this argument about all men being guilty and under the wrath of God. Okay, now as we go here, Imagine that you're in a courtroom. In any courtroom, there's going to be a charge leveled against the accused, right? He's standing before the judge because there's a charge made against him. The prosecuting attorney is going to be, bring evidence against that man to try to prove that he's guilty of the crime. So we've got a charge. We've got evidence. The prosecuting attorney is also going to try to prove a motive. Why he did what he did. So, a charge, evidence, a motive, and finally a verdict. The judge is going to render a verdict on that person, either guilty or innocent. And we have the same four things going on in this passage. We have a charge made in verse 9. We have, what was the second thing? The evidence <laughs> in verses 10 through 17. We have a motive in verse 18. And then we have a verdict in verses 19 and 20. So let's go through this courtroom situation and let's see how things unfold. First of all, the charge. Let's look at verse 9. What then? In other words, what's the result of all we have been saying? What's the conclusion? Are we better than they? I believe what he means is, are we Jews better than they Gentiles? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. 
Now here Paul is leading up to his final argument. He's already said the heathen is guilty, the hypocrite's guilty, the Hebrew's guilty. Now he's going to say the whole world's guilty. And he says that all of them are under sin. Now what does that expression mean? Everyone is under sin. Under it. I believe what he means by that is that all men, before they are regenerated, are slaves to sin. They are under sin's mastery or dominion. They're not free. We talk about man having free will. Well, he's got a free will to sin because he's under the dominion of sin. But he doesn't have a free will to change his heart because no man can do that. Only God alone can change the nature of a sinner into the nature of a saint. So all men, Paul says, are under sin. They're slaves to sin. Now, people will argue about this if you tell them that they're a slave to sin. But I'm not a slave to sin. What are you talking about? So what you should tell them is simply, okay, prove to me you're not under sin. Stop sinning. I want you to go 24 hours and not commit a single sin. And they'll come back to you and say, I guess you're right. <laughs> I guess you're right, because I can't stop. If they can, even if they can stop outwardly inside their mind and their heart, things are going on that prove they're fallen. Now, does the, does the New Testament actually teach that all unsaved people are under the dominion and control and mastery of sin? It does. It does. If you turn over to Romans chapter 6, Paul makes it super clear there. He says in verse 17 of Romans 6, he says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed. I mean, how can you make it any more plain than that? You were slaves of sin. And then he says in verse 18, And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. They were slaves of sin. Now they're slaves of righteousness. He says in verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So he says it very, very plainly. The, the Roman Christians at one time before their conversion were slaves to sin. Now, is this the only place in the New Testament? Well, no, it's actually, actually it's not. In Titus chapter 3, in verse 3, Paul says the same thing. Here we go. Titus 3, verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, and here it is, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Enslaved. There was a ball and chain around you, linking your soul and your heart to lusts and pleasures. Or another one that just came to me right now as we're, as we're thinking about this is Second Timothy chapter 2, when Paul is talking about how the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, he says in verse 25 of 2 Timothy 2, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will, enslaved to sin, enslaved to Satan, it's saying here, snared, like you know what a snare is, right? A, a bird gets caught in a snare, it can't get free. It's, it's trapped, unless someone stronger than the snare comes and releases it. Well, he's saying here, God can release it. God can set you free, but only God. Or one of my favorite passages, and one that I think Eddie quoted this morning, Ephesians 2.4. After he takes three verses to show the absolute lostness of the sinner, he says in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Now, what does that deadness and transgressions look like? Well, look at verse 3. It looks like this. Among them, we too, all, formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So, we indulged in lusts and flesh. We were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. And he says clearly in Romans 6, we were slaves to sin. That's what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 3, verse 9. 
Both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Okay, now Paul, can you make that charge stick? That's the charge you're making. Do you have any evidence to bring forth that'll make that charge stick before a court of law, before God is judge? And he says, okay, let me show you my evidence. Verses 10 to 17. The strongest evidence in a court of law is eyewitness testimony, right? Paul is going to bring forth some eyewitness testimony in verses 10 to 17. Whose eyewitness testimony is he going to bring forth? God's. He's going to quote God's word. God has given testimony in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament scripture. And Paul is going to quote six Old Testament passages where God gives his testimony of the character, the conversation, and the conduct of the sinner. Five of those passages are from the Psalms. One is from Isaiah 59. And he's going to string these passages together like a string of pearls. And by the time he's done, he's going to lay out this overwhelming evidence that God himself says that all men are under the power of sin. So let's take a look at that. First of all, the sinner's character. Romans 3, verses 10 to 12. The first thing I want you to notice about the sinner here in verses 10 to 12 is the universality of sin. Let me show you what I mean. As it is written, so now he's proving what he said in verse 9 about all men being under sin. Let me show you why I'm saying that. Because it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside Together they become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Do you see how he's <laughs> emphasizing none, all, and not even one? In other words, there's no exceptions to what God is saying here. There's not that one single person out there somewhere who defies the laws of fallen humanity. Everybody is included. Now, let's take this phrase at a time. Verse 10, there is none righteous. The reason he starts with that is because he said that the gospel in chapter 1, verse 17 is the revelation of God's righteousness, which every person needs. It's a gift of God to clothe our guilty souls. We need God's righteousness. Our righteousness won't do. We need a heavenly divine righteousness to make us acceptable to God. And so he says in chapter 3, verse 10, there's none righteous. That's why you need the gospel, because your righteousness is not going to be able to commend you before God. You need a better righteousness than the one you've got. And then he says, there is none who understands. Well, understands what? I believe what he means is understands God and understands spiritual truth. You see, fallen man does not think clearly and rightly about God. The fall has affected the way we think about God. We don't think rightly about him. Um, I, I like to say our thinker is broken. <laughs> in the fall, our thinker, our feeler, and our willer are all broken. They're distorted and perverse. They don't respond to God the way they ought to. So if we're ever going to know God, God is going to have to reveal himself to us because we can't find him out on our own understanding or our own intellect, our own brain power. And that's exactly what Jesus taught us in Matthew 11, 25 to 27. I'm going to read that to you real quick here. It's Matthew 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. Now, what is it that Jesus is saying that God hid from some and revealed to others? Well, look at verse 27. He'll tell us there. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills that means chooses to reveal him. Do you see his point? Men do not know God by nature. 
They won't know God by nature unless the Son wills to reveal the Father to them. That happened in Peter's life. Jesus asked Peter, who do men say that I am? Do you remember their answer? Well, some men say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're that prophet. Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter pipes up and says, I believe that you're the Christ, the son of the living God. How did Peter know that? Jesus said, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. But my father who is in heaven, he made a revelation to you about who I am, that I am the son of the living God. You see this, this, it, if you're going to become a Christian, God is going to have to make a revelation to you about who Jesus is and who he is. Because you're not going to think rightly about God on your own. Now, it's not just about God that they don't understand. It's about spiritual truth. Let me show you that from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. It says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Now, what's a natural man? Unregenerate man. And natural opposed to supernatural or spiritual. All he is is flesh. He doesn't possess the Holy Spirit. So he doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. How come? They're foolishness to him. And he can't understand them. Why? Because they're spiritually appraised. That means he doesn't value them. He doesn't look at spiritual things as being valuable or precious. They're like run-of-the-mill... He wouldn't even turn around to pick up a spiritual truth off the ground, like as if it were a dollar bill or something. He doesn't value it. He values money. He values pleasure. He values drugs and alcohol. Those are the things he's into. He doesn't value Christ and spiritual things. So Paul here says that the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. Cannot. That's the word he uses. He can't. And that's why Paul says in Romans 3 that there is none who understands. Now, of course, when he says that, he's accepting those who have been born of the Spirit. They can understand spiritual things. But everyone else is in this category over here where they do not understand. All right, let's go on. He says, there is none who seeks for God. Now, again, this doesn't mean that there's no one on the planet who's not seeking God. Because aren't you seeking God this morning? Christians seek God. That's the character of a Christian. He seeks God. And, and the psalmist knows this because in many of the psalms it points out that there are people in the world that do seek God. For example, uh, Psalm 9, verse 10. And those who know their... And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So there are people that are seeking God. Or Psalm 22, verse 26. I'll just give a couple of examples. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. So there are people in the world that do seek God. So what does Paul mean when he says there is none who seeks for God? He means there is nobody who seeks God whom God has already not sought. If you are seeking God, it's because God has already sought you. And he saved you. The unregenerate don't do this. They don't understand God. And because they don't value God, they don't seek him. You don't seek for something that you think has no value, right? You seek precious gems and money and the things that you think are worth something, you go after them. Well, the unregenerate man does not have spiritual taste buds yet. He doesn't have, uh, he, he just doesn't see the glory in Christ and so he doesn't run after him. So here we are. In the sinner's character, he's not righteous. He doesn't understand God or spiritual truth. He doesn't seek for God. And the reason he doesn't seek God is because he's dead in his sins. Now, he may seek some of the benefits that only God can give. I'll grant you that. Unbelievers, they want to go to heaven when they die. They would like to feel uh, a sense of peace in their life. They would like to have comfort, right? They would like joy. 
these are only these are all benefits that God gives. And so they seek after some of these benefits, but they don't seek the true and living God of the Bible. They may seek a God of their own imagination. They'll make up a God of their imagination. And this God is he loves everybody. He sends no one to hell. He, he doesn't judge anyone. He loves to shower grace on everyone. And so this is their God, and they seek that God their whole life. And they love to talk about how that's true. But when it comes to the real God, the one revealed in the pages of this book, there's no unregenerate people, persons that are seeking him. C.S. Lewis once said, Agnostics talk cheerfully of man seeking God. They might as well talk about the mouse's search for a cat. <laughs> Isn't that true? <laughs> How many mice are out there looking for a cat? None. <laughs> and we talk about seeker-sensitive churches. I think that's a big misnomer. How many unregenerate people are seeking God, and so we have to make our churches sensitive to all these people out there who are seeking God. Well, there aren't any. There aren't any like that unless God is seeking them. Okay, let's look at the next phrase. All have turned aside. That means there is a path to God and everybody's turned aside from that path. Jesus spoke about that there is a narrow gate that opens to a narrow way that leads to life. There's only a few people on that road. Why? Because the rest of them have turned aside and they're following the Broadway that leads to destruction. And the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, 6, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's what Paul is saying here. He's bringing evidence to prove that man is under sin. Here's just another piece of evidence that he's turned aside. He doesn't understand God. He doesn't seek God. He's not righteous. And he's turned aside from God. And then he says, there is none who does good. There's not even one. Now, people will argue about this if you tell them, you know, the Bible says there's none who does good. I say, wait a minute. I know lots of people. They're not Christians and they do good. They give money to charities. They help people. What do you mean? They're good people. They've got good hearts. Well, I think good needs to be defined as God would define good. How would God define good? Doing something that God wants done for God's glory, out of love to God, through faith in God. That's, that's how we define what's truly good from the mindset of God. And if you're not a Christian, you don't do anything, anything like that. You do them because you maybe feel sorry for people who are hurting, and so you'll give money to help them. But to do something really good has to have a Godward reference. You're doing it. It, it must be a God-centered action with a God-centered motive. And that's what's lacking in the people of the world. So there's none who does good defined by God, not even one. So there we see the character of the sinner. And it's not a pretty picture, is it? It's pretty dismal. Now let's look at the sinner's conversation. In verses 13 and 14, Paul talks about his throat, his tongue, his lips, and his mouth. Because he's going to describe the words that come out of the sinner's mouth. And he uses these various particles, <laughs> these, these various things of, of, of the person that actually utter forth speech. And he says, the first thing, their throat is an open grave. Now there he's trying to help us understand the kind of speech that comes out of a sinner's mouth. It's like an open grave. What's that like? a stench, unbelievable stench. Not only would it be grotesque to look at an open grave and see those the flesh rotting and the bones and all of that, but just you wouldn't want to go near it because of the stench coming forth from that grave. From God's perspective, when he looks at the kind of speech, the conversation coming forth from the unregenerate person, it stinks. It stinks. It's repulsive, disgusting. Vile, filthy in God's sight. 
And then he says, with their tongues, they keep deceiving. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. Isn't it interesting how you don't have to teach a little one or two-year-old who's just learned how to speak, how to lie, or to deceive? They already know. No one taught them how to do it, but they just know because their fallen nature teaches them to do it. So we use our mouths to deceive by exaggerating purposely or lying, falsifying information, keeping back a portion of the truth that we don't want anybody to know. And sinners are masters at deceiving with their speech. He goes on and he says, the poison of asps is under their lips. Now what's an asp? It's a snake. But this isn't any kind of a snake. It's not like a gardener snake that's harmless. It's a poisonous snake. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. In other words, what comes out of their mouth is deadly and destructive and causes harm to people. It's poisonous. And so I'm sure he's talking here about the blasphemies that people utter, the lies, the outbursts of anger, the profanity, the filth, all of that is like the poison of a snake just coming out, hurting people and destroying people. And then he says, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Are you, are you shocked like I am? You can't go really anywhere without profanity and cursing. I mean, you turn to watch a movie. It's going to be on that movie. If you go to Facebook and have the wrong kind of friends, you're going to get all kinds of profanity coming out of their posts. Uh, if you go to YouTube and watch the wrong kind of things on YouTube, you're going to hear profanity. And folks, I'm shocked at the younger generation of Christians today that they they curse and they don't see anything wrong with it. I don't. It doesn't. It doesn't compute in my mind. I. I don't know. It's, it's like a new generation, and they profess Christianity, they profess Christ, but they have no trouble swearing and using profanity. The Bible says, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such as good as is for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. So if you're using profanity in this word and that word, you're, you're violating what God has already said in his word. We as Christians need to be above board. We need to be different from the world. Not to try to, you know, mingle and get as close as we can to the filthy things that come out of their mouth and still become a Christian. We need to be separate and distinct when it comes to holy living. So, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. That's the evidence that Paul brings forth to describe the sinner's conversation and that he's under sin. And that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. You can see it by what they say. You can see it by their character. And finally, you can see it by their conduct. Look at verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. I, I discovered this week that there is a murder in the United States every 30 minutes. Of every 24 hours of every day of the year. If you, find, if you go by averages. I mean, that's a lot of murders taking place. And I'm also interested when I go back to Genesis chapter 6 and, and read there about the, the flood and the days of Noah. God gives the reason for bringing this flood. At first he says that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's pretty dismal, pretty black. But then he amplifies later on in verse 11 to 13. This is Genesis 6. It says, now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence. I am about to destroy them with the earth. So... The, the one particular thing that God nails and identifies as the reason he's bringing this flood upon the earth was violence. And violence comes in many forms. It can come in people getting into fistfights. It can come in rape. It can come in murder. But over here in Romans chapter 3, Paul says, 
that their feet are swift to shed blood. Folks, we are to be people of peace. We are to pursue peace with all men. We're not to be those, we're not to be brawlers, we're not to be fighters with our words or with our fists. We're not to shed blood. Uh, that's the characteristic of the ungodly. That's his conduct. That proves that he's under sin. And then he says, destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. Since that was written, there have been 13 years of war to every one year of peace in the world. <laughs> it proves, doesn't it, that destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. And the world will never know peace until they know the Prince of Peace. So I believe the evidence that Paul lays out here is conclusive. God gives his eyewitness testimony that his character, his conversation, and his conduct are all corrupt, and it proves that all men are under sin. Now, what's his motive? Why does he act this way? Look at verse 18. Because there's no fear of God before his eyes. That's why. That's why... He does the things that he does. There's no fear of God. Now, what does it mean? What is the fear of God? What is that? Right? It's the beginning of wisdom. Absolutely true. Yeah. I think that's, that's very, very close to it. We, we can think it's, it's not a slavish fear. Like, I'm afraid of God because I don't want this evil person, this evil being, to torment me and punish me. The fear of God is something that a Christian possesses. And he fears displeasing God and offending God. It's a reverential awe that he has towards God, where God is the great, awesome, supreme, glorious being, and he wants to honor this being, and he wants to glorify him because he loves him. He's been brought into a love relationship with him, so it's not a slavish fear. Because a slave has no love to an evil, tormenting master, but it, it's a love relationship that produces this desire to glorify and honor and please his Lord. That's what it means to have a fear of God. But the unregenerate, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, how does a person come to possess a fear of God? Have you ever wondered that? How does that happen? If there is no fear of God before their eyes... All right. Well, how do some people fear God and others don't? Well, we have the answer for us in Jeremiah 32, verse 40. And I love this verse. <laughs> it's wonderful. Jeremiah 32, 40. God says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Why do some people fear God? Because God put the fear of him in their hearts, according to his word. God put it there. It's not going to be there on its own. It's just like we won't know God on our own. We won't love God on our own. We won't seek God on our own. We won't fear Him on our own. The Lord must take the initiative to do these wonderful things in our life, or they won't be done. So there's the motive. That's the reason for this vile, depraved conversation, conduct, and conversation, and character is the one I missed. Yeah, that, that's the reason for it. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Well, let's go back to Romans 3, and let's look at the verdict. Verses 19 and 20 are the final summation of this long argument that Paul has been giving, and it's about three chapters long, and he finally comes to the end in verse 19 and 20. And in this courtroom, God's the judge. Now, what's the purpose of a judge? It's to uphold the law, Right? It's to bring the full force of the law to bear on lawbreakers. So Paul brings all men before the law of God and shows what the law does when sinners are brought to it. And there are three things that he says about the law and what it does. First of all, the law closes the mouth of every man. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed. That's the first thing. 
Every mouth is closed. Now, first of all, he says, the law speaks to those who are under the law. When Paul wrote this, who was he thinking about? Who was under the law? The Jew. The Jew was. And his argument, I believe, is that if even the Jew, with all of his advantages and privileges by God, had his mouth closed by the law, then certainly everybody else in the world who doesn't have those advantages, their mouth is going to be closed by the law too. The, the Jew is sort of a test case to see what would happen to sinful humanity when brought under the law. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, the Jew, so that every mouth, not just the Jew, but every mouth may be closed. Now what does he mean by closing the mouth of every man? I believe what he means is the law strips us of every excuse and every justification. We stand before God and we want to open our mouth to defend ourselves and the law just closes it. We can't say a thing. We can't defend ourselves. We can't excuse ourselves. We can't justify ourselves. Uh, the dictionary, the theological dictionary of the New Testament puts it like this. It just, it's talking about this word um, accountable in verse 19. It describes the state of an accused person who cannot reply at the trial initiated against him because he has exhausted all possibilities of refuting the charge against him and averting the condemnation and its consequences which unavoidably follow. That's a mouthful, but what basically what he's saying is that you stand before God and you, there's nothing you can say in your defense unless Christ is there to advocate for you and to speak in your defense, you'll be lost forever. You'll have no defense of your own that will justify you in the sight of God. Now, he said in chapter 1, verse 20, that the Gentiles were without excuse. He said in chapter 2, verse 1, that the Jews were without excuse. And now he's saying in chapter 3, verse 19, that all men are without excuse. They can't open their mouths. The law closes it. Secondly, the law exposes the guilt of every man. That's what he means in verse 19 when it says that all the world may become accountable to God. If you have a King James Version or a New King James Version or a New Living Translation, that's the way it says it. It says that all the world may become guilty before God. That's the import of this word accountable. The, one of the purposes of the law, not only to close the mouth, but then to render all men guilty before the judgment bar of God. That's its purpose. And then the third purpose is in verse 20, at the very end. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's why the law closes our mouth, that's why the law renders us guilty. It does that because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. See, the law can't save anybody. It can only condemn a person. It's like a mirror. You look in a mirror and you see dirt all over your face, but you, you don't take the mirror and try to wipe the dirt off, right? <laughs> it just exposes your dirt. It can't do anything to remedy the situation. Or the law is like a thermometer. It can tell you you have a fever, but you don't swallow the thermometer to get rid of your fever, right? It can only expose the, the condition that you've already got. That's the purpose of God's law. Now, what's the verdict? Verses 19 and 20 says, The verdict is that all the world is guilty before God. They cannot justify themselves by the works of the law, because all the law can do is condemn, it cannot justify. So that is Paul's summary conclusion to three chapters of arguing. Heathen, hypocrite, Hebrew, whole world, everyone is under condemnation and due the wrath of God because they are under the power of sin. It's a pretty dismal, right? Black picture, hopeless picture. But I'll give you a sneak preview of next Sunday, verse 21. But now, 
Don't you love the buts of the Bible? <laughs> I love them. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Now we'll get into that next time. He, now he's going to start showing the glory of the grace of God in the gospel in verse 21. But up until verse 20, there is no hope. People are left hopeless. He hasn't told them about Christ or grace or heaven or forgiveness or anything. He's just told them about sin, judgment, and wrath. Now, let's draw some implications from our study today. First of all, there is an implication about a person's conversion, about a person's evangelism, and about a person's worship. And I want to bring those three conclusions out. First of all, conversion. Folks, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you are guilty and you're exposed to the wrath of God. And as long as you argue with God about this, you will remain in your sins. The only way you can escape is to agree with God's verdict on you. That's The word confess in the Greek is homo legeo. It means to speak the same thing. It means to agree with God. If you are going to be saved... And I'm sure there are probably some people that are not regenerate yet. If you're to be saved, you need to agree with God about his uh, indictment against you. In the 18th century, King Frederick, who is a king of Prussia, was visiting a prison in Berlin. And while he was there, all of the inmates ran up to this king and they tried to prove to him how they had been unjustly imprisoned. All except for one. There was one guy that sat quietly in a corner. While all of the rest were telling the king, I shouldn't be here, I'm innocent, let me out, king, you can do it. But he just sat over there quietly. And so the king walked over to this man who wasn't trying to protest his innocence. And he said, uh, what are you in here for? And the man said, armed robbery. The king said, well, are you guilty? He said, yes, sir. I entirely deserve my punishment. The king then gave an order to the guards Release this guilty man. I don't want him corrupting all these innocent people. <laughs> but it does tell us a true point, doesn't it? That it, if we are ever to be released, we're going to have to agree with God that the reason why we're in this predicament is our own doing. We're the ones that got us here. We're guilty. You, you can't justify yourself and have God justify you. You have to take the place of condemnation and then God can justify you. So if you're not saved, my urging for you is to agree with God that you are sinful, you are guilty, you do deserve punishment, and tell that to God. I entirely deserve what's coming to me. Would you have mercy upon me? Okay, there's also an implication about evangelism. And what I mean by that as Paul is giving us a good example of how to witness, how to share your faith, how to share the gospel with people. And we make a huge mistake because we rush to the cross. If we want to witness, we start telling them about how God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And we start telling them about how Jesus died for your sins. And we start telling them um, about forgiveness and grace. And Paul doesn't do that. Paul labors for three chapters, and he doesn't say anything about any of those things. He talks about sin, judgment, and wrath for three chapters, and he doesn't let up. And he goes hard on those things. And it's only after three chapters of it that he finally talks about grace and forgiveness and justification and what the cross does and propitiation. There's a lesson in that for us. We have missed it. We have made... We have turned Christianity in America into Christianity light, and it's because we don't follow the example of Paul. We don't use the law to bring people under conviction. We don't tell them about sin and what that and how God views that. We don't tell them that they deserve the wrath of God. I think we need to go back and look at Scripture and look how Paul lays out the gospel, and I think we're not smarter than Paul, right? I think Paul knows something that we need to learn. And that is that you can't take someone to Mount Calvary until you've taken them to Mount Sinai. You can't rush someone into forgiveness until they know they're first condemned. You can't give someone medicine until they know they're sick. 
you, you can't, someone won't eat unless they feel hungry. They won't drink unless they're thirsty. And so we have to take time to bring people to a sense of desperate need. So this is a lesson for us. Let's go deep with people and help them understand who they are in the sight of a holy God. And when they do have a sense of sin and guilt, well, then it's time to show them the way out of that predicament. But if we rush them straight to how God loves you, God has a wonderful plan for your life. I know when I was first a Christian, that was the way everybody did it. They'd put it, God loves you in their bumper stickers, and everyone went around talking about how God loves you. That's the way you witnessed. Where does anyone in the Bible witness that way or evangelize that way? Look at, look at the sermons in the book of Acts. Did anybody in the book of Acts ever tell a crowd, God loves you? And that's how they start their message. Nobody does it. Nowhere. <laughs> I mean, if check me out, read through the Bible again and look for it. But there's nobody that preaches the gospel that way. We need to help them understand who God is and who they are. That's the starting point. And then when they start to get that straight, they can understand and they will appreciate the gospel of grace. Okay, so that's the lesson about evangelism. And I think our neglect of this has caused huge problems in the American church. I think we have a multitude of false converts because we haven't really dealt faithfully with people's souls. They've rushed into this thing thinking, oh yeah, I, I want someone to love me. But they've never agreed with God in their true condition. They've never sued God for mercy. They've never surrendered themselves completely to him to be ruled by him as Lord. And so we've got a bunch of false converts in America and we're in a mess. The church is a mess. We've got weeds and tares everywhere. Okay, third implication is for worship. Romans chapters 1 to 3 give the inescapable conclusion that every person apart from Christ is hopelessly lost. They're slaves of sin. They don't understand God. They won't seek God. Their character, conversation, and conduct is evil. And so if they're ever to be saved, God's going to have to take the initiative. Someone's going to have to act first, and it's not going to be the sinner because he doesn't even appreciate or value God. God's going to have to act first. That's what I mean by God taking the initiative. That's what we mean when we talk about the sovereign grace of God, that there was a loving, almighty being, glorious being, who took the initiative to set his love on us before we had any thoughts of love towards him. And he is the one who drew us. He called us. He brought us into this new relationship with himself. He, we were reconciled to him. He changed the heart. He changed the nature. It's a work of sovereign grace if you are a Christian today. And that ought to promote worship in your soul. We would never love God unless God had loved us first. We would never choose Christ unless he chose us first. We would never seek God unless he sought us first. We would never fear God unless he put the fear of him in our hearts. And so we should bless God and praise God and adore God and cherish God and honor God and glorify God. And so that's my final exhortation to us this morning is to be people that worship. Sovereign mercy has made the difference in our lives. You weren't a little bit smarter than your neighbor. You weren't a little bit better. Remember how Paul says in Ephesians, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. We're just like everybody else. The reason why you're a Christian is not because you have a little bit better heart than they did. No. Our hearts were hearts of stone. According to Scripture, he had to change them into hearts of flesh. We ought to be giving God the glory and not just 99.9%. A hundred percent goes to God. He made the difference. Who made thee to differ? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. You didn't make yourself to differ. God made you to differ. Let's, let's just sing a, a, a hymn and worship to him as we close. Praise God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father.
Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Lord, we worship you. We praise and adore you, Lord, for being so kind and so good and so loving to us. We pray that we would draw out the implications from this passage that we need. Lord, if there's any unconverted today, I pray that you would enable them right now to agree with you about their lost condition and to quit justifying themselves and to accept full responsibility for their sinful condition. Lord, I pray that you would help us to learn from Paul's example about how to share the gospel with people. And may we be people of worship. May we declare the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into this marvelous light. May you receive all the glory, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.